Hello, and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. Well, this is Easter weekend. We celebrate the resurrection. And the question you should be asking yourself is, did any of this stuff really happen? We don't make claims about just spiritual truths. We make historical claims as Catholics. And that historical claim is that Jesus Christ was executed by the Romans, dead as a doornail, and he came back from the dead, three days dead, uh, which is dead according to the Old Testament, and in his body, had uh, nail marks in his hand, had a, a wound in his side, and that he has numerous witnesses to this. St. Paul said 500 at one time. And so, because it's Easter, we're going to focus on the resurrection. You know, Dei Verbum, which is the... Um, Dei Verbum means Word of God. It's a Vatican II document, and it's about Scripture. And, and in 1965, the skepticism in the world uh, about uh, Scripture and the historicity of Christianity, which hasn't lessened, but it was peaking then. It was out of all the claims of the 19th century attacking the gospel. And that the idea of it all was, was that how could anyone really believe this stuff? Well, we believe it because it really happened. And Dei Verbum really reinforces this Catholic faith. It reinforces that the Gospels give us the account of Jesus' life and his resurrection. Go back to the apostles, that is, eyewitness testimony. That it's historical, not just spiritual lessons, which everybody gets very comfortable with. Everybody's got their spiritual lessons. We make an historical claim. Dei Verbum says that the Gospels tell us the honest truth about Jesus' resurrection. And you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John are both disciples of Jesus. Luke is a companion of St. Paul. Mark, according to Papias, a second century, early second century church father, said that Mark was the scribe for St. Peter's. So you have Paul's story, Peter's story, Matthew's story, and John's story. You know, uh, they like to talk about when all of this stuff was written down because part of the assault is it was years later. and It was like a game of telephone. But, you know, that is not an honest reading of the text. Take a look at Luke part one and Luke part two, which is called Acts of the Apostles. And they talk about the martyrdom of Christians. And they talk about how P Peter and Paul went to Rome. But they never talk about how Peter and Paul were executed, not in Acts of the Apostles. That comes from other apostolic sources, uh, tradition. So if Peter and Paul were executed before Acts was written, why isn't it included in Acts? Simple answer, because it happened after Acts was completed. That's why Peter and Paul's martyrdom is not recounted in Acts of the Apostles. So this puts the Gospels to within 20 or 30 years of Jesus' death. St. Paul, however, is the earliest witness to the resurrection in writing. He is an eyewitness, and he talks about it in Galatians, and his story is recounted by Luke in Acts of the Apostles. 
how he met the risen Jesus. And he went, uh, and this is the remarkable story of St. Paul, from being a persecutor of Christians to one of the great apostles who himself dies for Christ. So, in all of that are the church's claims about the historicity of Jesus rising from the dead. You know, people don't believe that, some people don't believe that people come back from the dead. Some people believe that maybe we have like a ghostly existence. That's how the Greeks think about it, and I think some Christians think about it mistakenly. That is not what the resurrection is. Jesus in his body, the same wounds in his hands, his feet, and his side. This is the claim. You believe it or you don't believe it. But what the point of Christianity is, you too, my friend, are going to rise from the dead. So we're going to talk just about the resurrection and the historical claims of Christianity today on Oral Valley Catholic. Okay, I think mostly Catholics are familiar with the term resurrection. But if you are called to explain it, what are you going to tell your friends? What are you going to tell people that have trouble with Christianity or don't even believe in it? They're spiritual and they're open to all sorts of truths. This is not Christianity. Christianity says one thing is true. God became man. He's the Lord of life. He was crucified. And he came back from the dead. And human nature and divine nature have been united in him. That's why we baptize at the Easter Vigil. It's what our baptism does for us. So let's take a moment and just compare the resurrection to other things in Scripture and other beliefs. First, Jesus does not return to ordinary life after he rises from the dead. The Easter season comes to a conclusion with ascension where Jesus goes back to the right hand of the Father. And he is there now and he has a body. And this is the union of God and the material world. And it's a glorified body and nobody really knows what that means. Um, but it is his body. He does not return to ordinary life. But think of the other examples of resuscitation in the gospel. Resurrection is about a new life in your body. Resuscitation is when the doc says, all clear, put those electric paddles on your chest, and your heart starts beating again. Well, this actually does happen in the gospel. Remember Jairus's daughter when Jesus goes in and everybody says, he's dead, she's dead, and they mock him. He goes, clear him out of here. And he walks into the little girl, takes her hand, and says, Talitha kum, little girl, arise. Or how about in John's gospel, when he stands outside of Lazarus's tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out wearing all his burial cloths. And he has to tell people, unbind him. And that's what they do. Well, listen to the stories of the resurrection this weekend. Nobody unbinds Jesus. Nobody tells Jesus to come out. Jesus rises from the dead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in John's Gospel, which some believe is probably the most historical account of the resurrection, they find everything folded neatly, nothing done in a hurry. The face cloth separate from 
the uh, the rest of the shroud, um, and what we have is the empty tomb. Here's the second thing: no Christian claims, no believing Christian claims, that Jesus's soul or his essence, essence or his ghost lives on. You know, there is an aspect in the Old Testament. Uh, you can look at um, the Book of Wisdom, chapter three, verse six. And you always hear this read at funerals, and maybe people misunderstand it, because this gets picked as an Old Testament uh, prophecy about resurrection. But here's part of it in chapter, in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 3 that is kind of misleading. As gold in the furnace he proved them, and as sacrificial offerings he took them to himself. In the time of their judgment they shall shine and dart about as sparks through the stubble. Well, maybe that does refer to a glorified body. It's a prophetic statement. Um, but it could also be interpreted other ways. This is the thing about life after death. Life after death, the resurrection, is about life after life after death. You will wake up after death. And please God, you're in purgatory, you're heaven. Let's all hope for the best, right? But resurrection does not equal the immortality of your soul. The general resurrection is when we are reunited with our body. So this complicated understanding of what happens after life, after death, of this resurrection, this remade creation, this is what the good news is, that this world will end, but the new age to come, the age of the kingdom of God, is when God and his world will be as God always intended it. In short, the resurrection is not the same thing as the immortality of the soul. The resurrection is about your corpse coming back to life, your cremated remains being brought up to life. All the cremated remains poured out on the Santa Catalina Mountains, being gathered up by God and being brought back to life. Here's a third thing that the resurrection is not. Um, to say that Jesus went to heaven is true, but Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So he's not there like a ghost is there. God is spirit. God doesn't have a body. Jesus as eternal son does not have a body. Jesus Christ as incarnated, as Son of God, Son of Man, does have a body. This is the reality we share. And this is what we mean when we say that we are united to the divine nature. It's something about the mystery of what the Eucharist is. So I said it before, and it's a really a great line. It's the resurrection is about life after life after death. Here's the great passage from Luke's gospel. While they were speaking about this, he stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Then he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you qu do questions arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see. Because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see, I have. And as he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. 
While they were still incredulous for joy and were amazed, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of baked fish. He took it and ate it in front of them. Yes, you're going to eat the resurrection of the dead. This is how real the resurrection is. He's not a ghost. He eats. He still has his wounds from life. And so, why are they incredulous? That is unbelieving. We'll talk about doubts because, boy, the apostles are always a hard sell from the beginning of the Gospels to the end because it is such a life-transforming light coming on as to what human life is about. How real will my body be in heaven? Heaven is not a ghostly existence. The general resurrection of the body is about our bodies being brought back to life, but a life that will not end. And so if you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, where this is all set out, it says that the Christian creed, the profession of our faith in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in God's creative, saving, and sanctifying action, culminates in the proclamation of the resurrection of the dead on the last day and in life everlasting. We firmly believe, and hence we hope, that just as Christ is truly risen from the dead and lives forever, so after death the righteous will live forever with the risen Christ. He will raise them up on the last day. Our resurrection, like his own, will be the work of the Most Holy Trinity. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, also through his Spirit who dwells in you. The term flesh refers to man in his state of weakness and mortality. The resurrection of the flesh, the literal formulation of the Apostles' Creed, means not only that the immortal soul will live on after death, but that even our mortal body will come to life. Belief in the resurrection of the dead is the essential element of the Christian faith from its beginnings. The confidence of Christians in the resurrection of the dead believing that we live. All right, shouldn't be any doubt about it. Now, this is what Christians believe. You either accept it or you don't accept it. Your friends either accept it or you don't accept it. But this is what reality is. You can't get away from the gift of life. And so, it is how it is that you live. Because the Christian gospel puts the resurrection of the dead together with righteousness, right relationship with God. And so we spend a lot of time talking about that. But I want to turn to something, and I want to address why doubts? Why is this good news received so reluctantly? In short, why ought we to believe this stuff? with all our heart, all our mind, and all our soul. I'll be there in a moment. So what's the best reason for believing in the resurrection? 
because it's true. The world is a weirder place than anybody seems to get it credit for. The materialist mindset of the modern secular culture really is focused just on matter. The reason physics, biology has been so successful because they don't take account of the mind or this aspect of us that's able to write poetry and music, to do science. Can you imagine a world where a chemical process, a human being that does have chemical processes, that it works so it can reflect back on the nature of its own existence, its own being, that at the very core of material existence is the ability to understand what the world is. This is how we think about God. It's why on the very first day of creation, God creates light, that is wisdom. And then on the very beginning of John's gospel, it says Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And so at the resurrection, the lights come on about the nature of God's reality. So why believe this stuff? Because it's true. You know, the, there is kind of this chronological snobism. That's what G.K. Chesterton used to say, that we think that modern people know much more about what it means to be a human than ancient people, that somehow we think we know more than Aristotle or Plato or Seneca, or Cicero, um, Homer, uh, Eshles, Sophocles, or the people who wrote the scriptures. You know, these are not stupid people. We talk about superstition. Jeez, we live in a superstitious time now. Over by the airport, they arrested a, a family that was, had Santeria shrines and Satan shrines in their, uh, in their uh, house. So superstition is not a thing of the past. Worshiping elemental powers is not a thing of the past. It's always been there. But we keep having these same patterns of thinking about what it means to be a human pe person. My sense of what really bothers people about the resurrection is the whole point of accountability. I am not my own judge, and I don't get to judge the world. And so when you look back on the ancient world, they lived with death much more than we did. They had diseases that they didn't have vaccines for. You know, I think one of the interesting things in Scripture is, you may have heard this, when they talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, modern Scripture scholars would say, well, they probably put it right through his wrists because that way the weight of his body could hold it up. You know, it's actually a very good point, but just thinking this through, the ancient people who said that Jesus showed his hands where he had the wounds, they actually had seen crucifixions. It was a go and gussy when they were alive. They really know more about crucifixion than any living person. And so when they say from an eyewitness account, that the risen Jesus had nail holes through his hands and through his feet? Well, most likely because it's true. You know, and there's a lot of things about the witness of the apostles that's interesting. You know, when you listen to the accounts 
of the resurrection during the entirety of the Easter season, or uh, you read them in, in the scriptures, the one thing that runs through all four accounts is doubt, doubt, doubt. Over and over it says the disciples did not believe. Check out Mark chapter 16, verses 12 to 13. Or, this is my favorite, is that the first witnesses to the resurrection are women. Women couldn't even be a witness in an ancient court. You know, Paul didn't make a big deal of it, but each of the Gospels did that it was a woman that was the first apostle of the resurrection. That's, well, it's actually in all four Gospels, um, that it was women that went there to take care of Jesus, and he chose them as his witnesses. Why? Because he makes those that are small in other people's eyes great. And the other thing is, Doubting Thomas, John chapter 20, verse 25. I mean, everybody knows that story. So that Thomas doubted until he could put his fingers through the uh, holes in his hands. Uh, And so this idea that they tell you, we doubt it. They could have believed he was a ghost. They could have believed that God had a special place in the afterworld for him. But that they all said, that he came back from the dead in his body and ascended into heaven. How do you just walk by that testimony? My favorite on that is you have a loving grandma and she makes you chocolate chip cookies and hot chocolate. Your best friend tells you, however, that that's just an act because she saw your grandma or he saw your grandma down at the market uh, and was slapping around the, the cashier uh, person and took a swing at a cop. You know, it just doesn't sound like your grandma, but you got this eyewitness testimony of people that don't lie. And so maybe you have to rethink who your grandma is. If you have doubts about the way reality is, but you get credible evidence of the resurrection, maybe you have to rethink about how you think about reality. So what are the basis for credibility of the gospel? Here's the first one. All four gospels, there's an empty tomb. And to this day, there is no place where Jesus' body is revered because it's not here anymore. The the tomb is empty. And, you know, um, the Holy Sepulchre, which is one of the sites that we Catholics support, the Holy Sepulchre, was where uh, St. Helen, who was Constantine's mom, went and visited in the early 4th century. And the early Christians there, predictably, had venerated the place they knew where Jesus was buried. And so Helen tore down a temple that had been built over to, I think, Saturn, and instead erected the Holy Sepulchre. And the oldest part of that building goes back to the time of St. Helen, I, I believe. And in it is the little eticule that you, you see, that you often see in pictures. And that's where Jesus was buried. And so since, wow, back into antiquity, this place was revered. Or here's another one. How about Jesus' appearances? You know, uh, think about the 12. But the most amazing witness to the appearances of Jesus is his risen body is St. Paul, Galatians chapter 1. Here's what it says. Now I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. It said he didn't get it from Peter. He didn't get it from Matthew. He didn't get it from John. For I did not receive it from a human being, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For you heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That's Galatians chapter 1. Same basic story again is told in Acts of the Apostles. Paul goes from being a zealous Pharisee who never knew Jesus historically, but came to belief because he met the risen Jesus. And so instead of persecuting Christians, he becomes the great apostle. And his writings are the oldest writings of the New Testament. Uh, some of them go back like 10 years after Jesus is risen from the dead. It takes a while to get things going. And Paul's letters are writing back to existing Christian communities. And so it's really after planting of Christian communities has already begun that you get letters to the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, to the Romans, um, all of these letters that St. Paul wrote. But you know the sign that Jesus gave and, um, and that we really ought to pay attention to? He said, and you probably remember this, it's in both Matthew and Luke. And the, the Pharisees are asking him for a sign. Uh, remember, St. Paul says, um, Jews want signs, uh, Greeks want wisdom. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. It says in Matthew chapter 16, 1 to 4. I know you remember this. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. Well, that is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark has no sign will be given. The sign of Jonah is what's picked up in Matthew and Luke. Now, here's the thing. Remember the, the book of Jonah. Is Jonah is this prophet who God tells to go to the Ninevites. Instead, he goes the other direction. Um, he tells uh, the sailors on this boat that's sailing away from Nineveh and Asia Minor. He tells them that he's running away from God, but if they throw him overboard, uh, that the boat will be saved. So they throw him overboard, and then he's swallowed by a great fish. And then if you read the book of Jonah, he says that he calls out to God from Sheol. Sheol's the place of the dead. That's where Jonah was. Jonah did not live and eat in the belly of a whale. He was dead. And so he got spit back up on the shore. He came back from the dead. Then do you remember what he did? He went to Nineveh. He repented. And there was an immediate um, conversion of the Ninevites. Remember, Jonah ends up, the story being upset because the Ninevites were not destroyed by God. But think of the sign of Jonah coming back from the dead and the conversion of the Gentiles. So what's the sign of Jonah in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Well, it's us. For 2,000 years, Gentiles have been converting to this Jewish rabbi. It's still the most persecuted religion in the world today, just like Jesus said it would be. What do you do 
when all the things he said come true? Well, what you do is you believe. Because the sign of Jonah is the presence of St. Mark Catholic Church in Oral Valley and other little parishes like it spread throughout the world. The continuing conversion of the Gentiles. Um, the Pope's been around for two millennia. I mean, there's some things about Catholicism that are absolutely unique. Why is it opposed? Because it's a sign of God's presence in the world. The sins of our clergy and our bishops and cardinals isn't going to destroy us. What's going to destroy us, if anything does, is a lack of faith, hope, and charity. Because the gospel runs on fidelity, fidelity, fidelity. So if the disciples doubt, 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 the response is faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. Because all of our hope is founded in faithfulness. Our hope for our families and our hope for our own resurrection from the dead. So this Easter, wow, what a powerful event the resurrection is. And we think that these things actually happened and what they mean for our life today. So there's something to think about during this Easter season. This has been Father John Arnold, and this has been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic, proclaiming Christ in Western Oral Valley and some neighborhoods in Marana. Let's all get on board with that. God bless you. Happy Easter. <music>